people want to be part of something bigger than themselves. So in order to be something bigger than yourself, you have to know what that bigger thing is. And that means creating a talent brand. Hello and welcome to Grow Up, an APG Canada podcast where we give strategic thinkers and creative tinkers opportunities to grow. I'm your host, Michelle Lee, and today on the show, we're catching up with Andy McCauley, founding partner of MetaPurpose and chief growth officer at The Garden. Andy has been associated with some of Canada's most successful agencies, including Rethink, Zig, and Christian Porter Vagusky Canada. And some of that success, I believe, must at least in part be due to culture. You can't do good work without good people. So today we're talking about culture and how you build one post or arguably even still during a global pandemic. Just before we dive in, we'd like to give a special shout out to the team at Tank for sponsoring this week's episode. As one of Canada's leading agencies and supporters of strategic planning, they've shown a keen interest in continuing to help us foster and strengthen Canada's strategic talent. And for that, we thank you. Now let's get into the show. Andy, welcome to the show. Um, Terrific if you could tell us a bit about yourself, your new role at the Garden, um, and then launch into your five tips. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Thanks, Michelle. Um, Glad to be with you. Uh, So just a a quick little bit on background. I've been working in the agency business for a very long time since coming out of business school um, and been fortunate enough to, to be part of the the creation of and then growth of um, some agency brands I'm very proud of. And yes, culture was absolutely a cornerstone of success. Um, you know, it goes back as far as Roche McCauley and partners in the, in the 90s, but then Zig that we built in the aughts. Uh, and then most recently part of, um, of Rethink. Uh, then when that came to an end, I was looking for a job, so I created one. <clears throat> and so that's where MetaPurpose came from, really to help uh, people... Um, who are trying to travel a path similar to the one I traveled, not make all the mistakes that I did. And most recently in, in that, in the light of that, I started doing some work with my friends at the garden. And then they asked me to become a more significant part of that team earlier this year. So I now carry the title of chief growth officer. Uh, but that said, that occupies a significant chunk of my time for sure. Wow. And, and does some of that growth involve culture, I imagine? Or is this kind of some of your, you, you just enjoy thinking about it? I mean, culture is obviously a huge part of any agency. Yeah, it, it is. And I think that the culture of any creatively based uh, company, whether that's software or entertainment production or agencies or design firms in this case, um, is, is instrumental um, to uh, creating the environment, creating the conditions in which people can do their best work. Um, and, and really that the equation of doing best work is obviously it starts with individual talent, um, but it's enabled by process, but, but really it, it comes, it goes from good to great in a culture that enables that to happen. So yes, um, I, I have always been a big proponent of that. Um, learned a lot about what to do and what not to do. Um, the garden is um, still relatively young, although we're now uh, almost 30 people and and working for some wonderful brands. So there is a culture very much that comes from, from the founding partners, Shane Ogilvy and Sherry Walchak. Um, and the, the challenge I've learned, uh, through my own experience is taking an agency of, a, of the size the garden is now. Um, and there is a stair step that happens at about this stage at about 25 to 30 people where you really have to stop 
trying to simply model the culture, which is challenging enough, stop just trying to set an example for the people, but really entrench it, really start to work at it, start to invest more in it. Um, because as you get to that size, it becomes that the interactions become um, different um, and perhaps less frequent than with the people who actually gave birth to the culture. Um, so you really have to work at, at entrenching it and, and um, you know, in the, in the case, for example, of Rethink, I remember shortly after I started, which was um, their Toronto office was a, a little over 20 people and they were trying to grow it and they wanted to some help doing that. So I came in and, and um, uh, I was astounded to find that they were actually I could actually because I start with the numbers. So I could actually prove that they were investing four or five points of revenue into culture building activities. Like it wasn't just what happened informally. It wasn't just the, you know, the weekly all staff or that sort of stuff. No, there was investment in, in training, in living the culture, in modeling the culture, in lionizing the people who demonstrated the culture. Um, and, uh, you know, we did that at Zig too. Um, but it was interesting to go into what was somebody else's company and, and look at the effort and money they were putting into doing that. And we're very much doing that at the garden. And what, I'm curious, what sort of returns um, did that have? Because actually, one of the things that I've really noticed about Rethink, and a lot of agencies will say it, I imagine it's true at the Garden as well, that the retention was a hell of a lot better than the industry average. Um, would well, that be one well, of the I mean, there's a couple of things uh, to that. So to answer your question on the return, it's, it's obviously really difficult to do a linear ROI equation. Um, but what you can do is kind of triangulate your way there by saying, look, you know, the, the, the more we spend on this, the, the more good things that are happening and retention being probably the most significant of them. And I think there are two things that really underlie retention. One of them is um, people want to work for a winning team. Duh. And so success begets success. Um, and, and that's why it's so often agencies do better for longer than probably their work warrants because the momentum of success carries them there. But the reverse could be true, too. Often agencies that have struggled can can actually be doing much better work than they're given credit for because the momentum of negative success so I won't call it failure, um, also carries them on. So that people want to be part of a winning team. And the, the second one, I think, is that and Gallup has proven this. In re they do some really interesting work into workplace environments and um, and productivity res returns from um, from culture growth, etc. And, and they've proven that the most important question that people can answer to demonstrate the, um, the health of the culture. Um, is there somebody in a position of influence in this company who cares about my growth? Period. Full stop. If the answer is yes, then the people are engaged. The people are committed, less likely to leave, hence retention. Um, and they're also more likely to invest. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of discretionary energy, but there's been a lot of work done um, that, that says that. And it's going to be common sense, but it has been quantified as well that people who are, enga are engaged, people who feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves, people who feel like the company gives a shit about them, 
are willing to invest more of themselves in their job, not just doing the job, but excelling at the job. Um, and, and psychologists have called that discretionary energy. Um, and, and a precondition for discretionary energy is the belief that the company cares about me and cares not about how well I do my job, but just about me as a human being, about the fact that I'm going to grow, that I have out challenges outside of work, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, maybe this is going to come up in your, your five tips. Um, I love that point that they care about me as a human being. How do you do that during a global pandemic? Have you have you solved that one? Let's just call a solution organic in yeah. the sense that there's, there's no, there is no finish line to that solution. Mm-hmm. There are always ways to get better at it. But I think that the, the it's interesting because if you look at the at the companies that have done really well in the pandemic, creative industries that have done really well in the pandemic versus those that have struggled. Um, those that have done well have recognized that they needed to do things um, to compensate for the fact that there wasn't the, the, the social interaction that is such a vital part of our industry. So, and no, it doesn't mean scheduling, you know, a team Zoom call every day because you're going to drive people crazy. But, but it does mean, you know, little surprising things like, couriering somebody something so that they have a physical, tangible reminder of your gratitude for their commitment to their job. I mean, it's it's little things like that, little delights and surprises, as well as declaring your ambition, declaring, and I'm not sure how many people did this, but but off the top of the pandemic, or at least once we recognize its likely duration, saying to everybody, look, one of the things that we value about our, our culture is the opportunity that we have to look one another in the eyes and have the kind of meaningful communication that's really difficult to do over Zoom. Okay, so we can't do that for our own health. So we're going to need to find other ways to do that. And that doesn't mean just time. It doesn't mean, as I said, adding you know a Zoom call every second hour. It, it does mean really thinking about being very deliberate and mindful about how do we how do we, as a leader of a company, how do we create belief or perpetuate belief, hopefully, in our people that this place really cares about them, that we're not just a, a um, freelance group of folks who come together to do a job, but we're actually part of something bigger than ourselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's uh, interesting because I think in some ways, remote work maybe allows you to be a bit more intimate than you would physically because you can still maintain your or can maintain some of those one-on-one interactions a little bit more easily. Um, it's an interesting dynamic. Um, does that, does, is that kind of your, your, your first tip? Have I stolen that away? Is it, is it the notion of, uh, providing uh, declaring your intentions, providing some tangible delights and and surprises or, or well, let's, Let's just say that that's, that's, um, I have taken five and made it three, by the way. So sorry. Yeah, about okay. that. Uh, <laughs> no worries. But, but, but it certainly is embedded in one of the three for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, what was your first was, how would you articulate it? Uh, so the first I would articulate, um, and, uh, just in anticipation of potential eye rolls, hear me out on this point, diversity. Now, okay. most, most of the time we think about diversity as being, Oh, I don't know. It's either diversity of gender or gender identification or ethnicity or culture or life stage. 
but it's diversity way beyond that. What we're looking, what we're really looking for is different worldviews. We're looking for people who <clears throat> will, who think differently, who will challenge a problem differently, who communicate differently, who, who believe in different things. Because if you, if you, um, if you hire for and cultivate diversity in life experiences, educational background, ambitions, personality types, thinking styles, belief systems, even hobbies, if, if you, if you really, you're hiring a person, not somebody to do a job. And so that whole person has all of that stuff embedded in them. So if as part of your hiring process or your recruiting process, which is bigger than hiring, of course, if you're looking for people who, of course, we need this, this skill set, the talent, that's ta- talent, um, either, I don't know if it's good or bad, but talent is table stakes. What, what you really need is the ability to p- apply that talent in a productive way in a team sport. Um, and the, the, to have, um, a bunch of different ways of looking at the world, contributing to solving a problem is going to get you to solutions that you would never get to otherwise. So I call it diversity, which automatically makes people think of, uh, of, as I said, gender and ethnicity and culture, those are all really, really important because those are the bases often of where we draw our worldview from. But then put on top of that all of the other stuff, including the genetic stuff like thinking styles, um, which, by the way, can be trained. It's not just genetic, but throw all of that stuff in. And ideally, you want a, a melange that, that has a whole whack of different ingredients. And and. Sorry, just one last point on that. And in in achieving that, you by definition, I think, are going to make the workplace more interesting for curious minds. And and there is a uh, a huge correlation between intelligence and curiosity. Um, and so, and what we're trying to do, like I, I remember when my son. Uh, at age three was playing with one of those rolly cars on the floor. And I could see this look come over his face and he turned it over and he looked at it. What he was trying to do at that young age was figure out how the thing worked. I like, I've uh, talked about pride. Well, okay. So take that, to, take that to us as adults. I love curious minds and curious means minds love to be exposed to stuff that they've never, that they don't, think of themselves. They don't, haven't lived. They haven't been experienced to. So the more small D diverse the workplace is, the more interesting it is a place for people to work. Yeah. And and that made me think of two things. One was I actually distinctly remember a job ad that Sherry Walzak posted on our jobs board. And it was very much that uh, I remember it was intentionally trying to find people who are outside of the industry, you know, had a different point of view on things. And so I like that there's been that tangible translation into that that concept or that thought. I think uh, there's also a recognition of humility there for an agency to take it upon themselves um, to recognize even if they're doing really, really well, even if they're winning every award in their agency of the year for the fourth time in a row, um, that, that they can still bring in people who are going to bring in a diversity of thought that that'll help them get that much better or maintain where they are at. Because I think sometimes when an agency reaches a certain level, then it's like, well, it, it almost maybe feels a little bit like, well, everyone wants to work here. Everyone's banging down the door to work here. And so we don't maybe have to try as hard to, to get people to come. 
Well, I think that's I think that's true. I think there were several thoughts embedded in what you just said. One of the ones I want to pick up on is um, is the echo chamber effect. Um, I, I think that. Um, uh, you know, it's probably best demonstrated in our lives in social media, where you tend to end up, thanks to algorithms and and sometimes our own choices, you tend to end up only talking or listening to people like you on social media, which I think is one of the worst things for our democracy. But I'll get off that soapbox. I think the same phenomenon exists um, within agencies, where if if you it, too much success, and it can, it's not just agencies, it can happen anywhere in life. Too much success can remove that humility, can can cause you to think, well, we got this thing figured out. All we need to do is more of the same. Well, guess what? The, the world's moving just a little too quickly for you to be that complacent. So one of the things is, is you know, one, one of the big um, biases uh, in decision making is not knowing what you don't know. Um, and the odds are pretty good that you're not going to find that by hiring more people who know the same things that you do. So you have to you have to hire people who know what you don't know. So I like this diversity point. There's a lot that sits underneath of it. It 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 you know almost does itself a disservice by being called that. But I I, I absolutely the 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 melange of different points of view and and thinking um, and education hobbies and all of that. What would be your tip number two for maintaining a terrific culture? Uh, so the the number two is what I call shared consciousness. Which, which is there needs to be an underpinning of shared beliefs, ideas, and values um, that that and which is really interesting to try to accomplish when the first tip was diversity. So what you're trying to do is get in as many different points of view as you possibly can and all have them function with a sense of shared consciousness. So that that's may seem like a bit of an oxymoron, but that's what the great agencies do. And it really starts with being very articulate about what do we believe as a company? Not what do you believe as, a, as an individual, although one hopes there's some serious confluence there. But what, what do we believe as a company and how does it affect the way that we treat each other, the way that we develop our work, the way that we work with our clients, um, the, the way that, 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 I mean, it should affect daily decisions. So, you know, one of the things that, that we often do with our clients, and I hate these exercises, but mission, vision, values, I mean, that's all about trying to, um, get us all in the same pay on the same page, um, uh, in terms of the way that we're going to behave as a, as a company. Um, and I really think a, a friend of mine talks about it as being, you know, moving from a, from an organization to an organism. Um, and, and an organism is, is able to um, react to particularly to external stimulus as one thing because it is one thing. And that one thing in the case of an agency that's full of a lot of people, um, where do you find the confluence that allows people to behave? You know, the, the great agencies have always had, this is a CPB way of doing things. Um, this is a rethink way of doing things. And we're trying very much trying to build that in garden, which to be clear, I want to add the disclaimer right away does not mean creating automatons or robots. Not at all. Um, there has to be it, the culture benefits from people thinking for themselves and interpreting those those beliefs and, and values in a way that works for them so that they can be authentic. 
But there has to be enough confluence that ideally you want client A and client B to have the same experience with agency C and describe it in the same ways or more or less the same ways. That's part of building a corporate entity. And, and in your experience, what is the best way to author or create these mission, vision values? Like, are these the kind of like day long off sites that senior folks go to or is it the whole agency or? Um, uh, you, you know what? I, I've seen it done a bunch of different ways. It really starts with the leadership of the company. I mean, let's be clear. And and my most of my experience has been working in owner operated companies as opposed to holding company owned companies. So in, in owner-operated companies or founder-led companies, the, the, the ambition of the company is born in the founders or the leaders. Um, and clearly they need to articulate it in such a way that it becomes something that uh, something of a beacon that attracts talent that believe the same things. So when it comes to then inculcating that or, or growing that or articulating it, um, then obviously you, you need um, the involvement in some form or another of everybody in the company, because if they want to um, feel like they are part, truly part of something bigger than themselves, then they need to feel like they didn't just, you know, buy into something that existed, but their, their involvement somehow makes the company something that it wouldn't have been without it. Right. So being able to kind of see, see their own role or their own, uh, uh, contribution, it sounds like, to the agency. Uh, very much so. And that's actually, you're going to get me to my, my third point, but I'll, I'll, um, I'll answer or embellish what you just said and then uh, repeat it in the third point. And, and that is that um, people need to feel like their contribution to the company as they understand it and as they're rewarded for it is clearly connected to the achievement of the ambitions of the company. Somebody who goes in and feels like they're a cog in the machine and without the ability to really significantly affect, which obviously goes up as you go up, as you, as you become more senior in the company. But anybody should be able to make a meaningful contribution to the culture of the company. And ultimately, the culture of a company enables the outcomes that fulfill the ambitions of the company. So anybody in the place should be connected to how well the place does. And they should see and be rewarded rewarded for that connection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So a clear line of sight. So yeah. I've got diversity, shared consciousness, and a connection to the agency ambitions um, through some kind of recognition or reward. And, and I'm curious, a lot has been written about millennials. Let's just pick on a, let's just pick on a, a generation. Um, are their values or what they expecting different from, uh, agencies or, or company cultures today, um, than, than, than Gen X? <sighs> um, so the, <laughs> this is probably about, um, I don't know, a two hour conversation <laughs> in and of, its, in and of itself. <laughs> Every cohort has a has a different experience, and those experiences in the you know under the heading of nature and nurture, those experiences on the nurture side are going to affect their perceptions of the world, therefore their place in it, therefore their daily activities. So yeah, sure, every but but I mean it's obviously it's it's simplistic to suggest that. Um, Gen Z, Gen Z thinks this, Gen X thinks this, Gen, it, that's simplistic, but, but there is also some truth to it for sure. 
I guess I'm curious, you know, 15, 20 years ago, would you have said the same things? You put yourself on a time machine and we had this show going on. Would you have yeah. given the same three tips? I guess broad brushstrokes, they would be similar or where, where might they stand? Broad, broad brushstrokes, they, they would be similar, but the context would be so fundamentally different. I mean, I, th- I think what you're seeing in the Great Resignation and what you're seeing in companies struggle with well, what does our version of the hybrid model look like if, in fact, they're trying to implement hybrid because people like Airbnb and Shopify have said, no, no, not even going to try hybrid. You're, we're getting rid of our office space and you're working from home. Well, good for them. Uh, they will face different challenges than the hybrid model faces, and they'll face different ch- challenges than the traditional model faces. But every model has its challenges. But to go back to your question, 20 years ago, the context would have been so different. Now we've just had a externally imposed period of time where our working days look so fundamentally different that to 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 talk to that to this time has to look very different than it did 20 years ago even though the underlying principles are the same the most important of which two of them actually but the most important of which is we've we've always sought agency and by that i mean control of our own situation we've always sought the desire we've had the desire to, to make the situation fit us. And the, our ability to do that now, thanks to technology, thanks to the expectations that have come out of the pandemic, is fundamentally different than it was 20 years ago. So how we achieve that now is also going to be fundamentally different. But but the underlying principle is always the same. We, we want to maximize our own agency. Um, the, the, I think that's probably the, the most important one. The, the, the implication of that for agencies today, and, and way more so than it would have been 20 years ago, is I think agencies have to be and both. And I think we've, we've always been pretty good at that as an industry because we, particularly we as strategists, have always had to try to uncover tensions in, in the work that we do, because in that tension, we will find the energy and often the more innovative or the, the, the vein in which we really want to operate on behalf of our clients. Well, ag- agencies are like that, too. I mean, we, we are one, one big bag of tensions. Um, and so agencies have to live in a we're not going to be that or that. We're going to be that and that. And, and the, the, the great agencies have always been really good at that. Yeah, no, you, you, you talk about um, agency and control. And I think even earlier in this conversation, you talked about kind of caring about individuals as, as people. Yeah. Um, it, like what I hear in that as well, and we, we were talking about context, and there's been a lot of conversation about setting boundaries, mental wellness, obviously technology, oh, and remote yeah. work, lots of freedom, but, uh, you know, a, a little too much sometimes. Um, can you talk a bit about that? Does that weave into this, obviously, as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that, you know, there was, I was just reading a Fast Company Compass article this morning. I think it came out yesterday about they had a convened a panel to talk about mental health at work. Um, and it, I think generally, thankfully, mental health challenges are, are becoming much more 
some of the stigma, not all of it, but some of the stigma is going going away, which enables conversations to happen that that couldn't have happened 15 or 20 years ago about what people need in order to be completely healthy, not just physically healthy, but healthy from a mental standpoint as well. And, and, and I can tell you both from observation from personal experience and from um, academic reading, setting boundaries is so fundamentally important because if it all mashes together, you're just at sea in terms of your ability to manage your priorities, your happiness, etc. So setting boundaries is absolutely critical. And as it relates to hybrid work, most of us are in a relatively new world in terms of being able to knowing how to do that. Yeah, it's something I think we kind of all have to remind ourselves and, and keep each other in check because it's easy to answer one more email at 5.06 on a Saturday or whatever, and it becomes a few more. Well, well and, and that makes a very good point that, that agencies have historically been thought of in many cases as sweatshops without life, uh, life work balance, um, not knowing where the boundary is. And, and, you know, to a certain extent, well, one, that's true um, of us as an industry as a whole. Um, and so it just puts, it makes it more important for individuals to be able to set the boundary, but also makes it very important for companies to declare their expectations long before somebody actually starts to work there. Like what, what is our culture? How, how do, what do we think about um, when you were in the, 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 heat of a pitch for a client that we really want and we're almost there and the presentation's Monday and it's Friday at five, are we all going to say, no, sorry, we're not, no, no, sorry. My boundary is I do not work on the weekend. Well, okay, good for you if that's the case. But that, I don't know many people in this business, certainly not many senior people in this business who would say that's cool. And is that right or wrong? I'm not going to pass judgment on it. I'm just going to observe it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I actually recall, like, I know that Rethink, for example, will not do client meetings on Monday. Uh, obviously, like, because it, it invariably means that people are working all weekend for that, to, you know, to get that deck in the right shape. Um, but once you explain that intention to clients or the reason behind that to, incline, to clients, then I think that they understand. And, and it's nice that that uh, support of its employees has turned into kind of a tangible principle or rule. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, Absolutely. Uh, There are others that that um, uh, that you would observe looking at rethink, Um, you know, they they try to protect the hours that creative directors have with their writers and art directors, for example, by insisting that there not be meetings, you know, before noon on certain days, client meetings before noon on certain days. But at the end of the day, we're in the service business. So if, if, um, if a client, we, we need to have boundaries, but we need to recognize that life doesn't always enable us to, to make those boundaries ironclad. Sometimes we need to make exceptions, but, but those exceptions can't become the rule because then there's no point in having the boundary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, one last question I have for you. Um, obviously, you know, as we started out, you have been behind or have helped create some of the most successful, uh, you know, Canadian agency uh, brands uh, in the industry. And, and I believe most of them, if not all of them, have been independent. How important is it for the agency to maintain its brand? Uh, we just heard about uh, Accenture launching Accenture Song and bringing together a, a few of its brands. I'm, I'm curious uh, what your perspective is on that. 
not necessarily that uh, <laughs> consolidation, but just uh, independence and agency brands. Is, is, is that, you know, uh, necessary for, for great cultures? I'm going to reframe your question. So okay. my, my reframing is if you go back to the individual level, which is where it all has to start, people want to be part of something bigger than themselves. So in order to be part of bigger, something bigger than yourself, you have to know what that bigger thing is. And that means creating a talent brand. And it means, you know, I, in that article that you sent me just before this recording, somebody talked about, well, it used to be known that writers at Scali were of a certain level or a certain quality. And so therefore people, writers particularly really aspired to get into Scali because it was the top of the heap in terms of writing quality. Well, that, that's one aspect of it for sure. But but that actually takes me to to the third point I was going to make about um, cr the creating culture, which is, or perpetuating culture, which is creating the conditions for that to happen. One of which is being very, uh, at, at the same time, visionary and specific about what the ambitions of the company are. And you can't have a brand, a, a successful brand that doesn't know what that is. Or, or equally importantly, once it knows what it is, doesn't live it. Um, and so, so that's why I think agency brands really matter that, and, you know, I've said forever that, that agencies for the most part, really our skills are for the most part, very transferable. We, we could put our, our computer away in one place and pick it up in another and pretty seamlessly fit in. So what is it that really differentiates an agency? Well, well, it is this meta thing called the brand. It, it is a, um, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a bunch of practical things. It's, it's expectations, it's processes, it's all that sort of stuff, but it's something way bigger than that. And it's that way bigger thing that, that causes people to say, yeah, I'm really proud. I work there. Yeah. I really, I would really like to get a job there. And, and that's about the brand. Hmm. So then it almost doesn't seem to matter what name you hang over the door, or what the, you know, the name of the thing is, as long as people understand what it is and that it keeps, uh, you know, delivering against that. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I think that's uh, the evidence of that is uh, I can point, whether it's Crispin Porter or Wyden and Kennedy or, or now rethink in Canada, I can, I can point to, to brands that are either named after people that are no longer there or, uh, or after an idea or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that, that as we well know, brands are built, they're not created. And so the meaning that gets inculcated into whatever name is on the door um, it is the definition of the brand. It, it's about meaning. It's not about the name. Right. Well, I mean, you told us you only had three tips, but I feel like we squeezed a lot more out of you. <laughs> so I, I thank you so much for your time and, and uh, you know, your continued support of the APG. Um, I feel like I've, I've reached out to you a few times and every time the answer has been yes, absolutely. I will help with that. So thank you, Andy, for continuing um, to offer up your very valuable time uh, to help uh, raise the bar um, for those in the industry, even those who are, who are starting out or continue to progress in their career. My pleasure, Michelle. I'm happy to help. Great. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for joining today's episode of Grow Up. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share the episode, and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Next
next week, we'll be chatting with Rory Sutherland, Vice Chairman at Ogilvy UK, Chief Architect behind Ogilvy's Behavioral Science Nudge Unit, Ogilvy Change. See you then.